Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, Mali's president revealed that he is negotiating with extremist leaders. Could this be a game changer in the Sahel? And there's been a spate of vigilante violence and mysterious gas attacks in Zambia. What does this say about Zambian politics? Plus, we discuss Africa's foreign security partners. Does the U.S. objective to become the partner of choice resonate with African leaders? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. In February, Malian President Ibrahim Boubacar Kaita acknowledged that his government had started a dialogue with senior jihadist leaders. Could his gambit bring an end to conflict in the region? Joining me today to discuss Mali and other issues is Katie Bo Williams, a reporter with Defense One, Ryan Cummings, a director at Signal Risk, and a non-resident senior associate at CSIS, and Jonah Victor, co-author of the new book, African Security and Introduction. All right, let's start with what we know about this development. President Kaita, also known as Ibaka, confirmed that he was negotiating with JNIM, which is the Al-Qaeda affiliate in the region. Mali's President Ibrahim Boubacar Keita has said the authorities were now prepared to talk with jihadist groups in the hopes of ending an insurgency that has made swaths of the country ungovernable and stoked ethnic violence. Keita, speaking in an interview with French media on Monday, acknowledged escalating bloodshed in the country's central and northern regions and that this has prompted a rethink in Bamako. His ambassador to France said there were only three red lines for the negotiations. Sharia law, there could be no Sharia law, territorial integrity of Mali must be retained, and the equality of women was critical. Jonah, my first question to you is, why now? Why do governments agree to negotiate with extremists? Any insights you can share? So in the book, we talk about three basic ways that wars come to an end. First way is unconditional victory. One side defeats the other. Prospects for this scenario kind of played out in 2012 when Somalian army suffered a series of defeats in the north and the government pretty much had to abandon the northern part of the country. The second way we call uh, victory with a helping hand. This is where one side, the government or rebels, receive quite a bit of outside support, arms, equipment, maybe foreign fighters or troops fighting alongside them. This has also been tried in Mali, starting in 2013, French Operation Serval, then Barkhan. But with all these troops and operations, this hasn't really changed the trajectory overall to peace. It's contained the threat somewhat, but it's gotten worse in some areas. So if you can't beat the enemy, then the last option is negotiated settlement. And that's where we seem to be now in Mali. This is a politically difficult course of action. It's not going to be popular in Bamako. It's not always popular in partner capitals like Washington and Paris to negotiate with the enemy, negotiate with terrorists. But sometimes it does work. We're in between elections in Mali, so it's not a particularly politicized environment. The Malian army over the past year has suffered mounting losses on the battlefield. In the public, there's rising discontent in Mali about the presence and role of French forces. So maybe this could be the right opportunity. And plus, some of the non-jihadist militant groups are starting to cooperate, implementing other agreed-upon peace steps. So it might be an opportunity. It's going to be risky. So I'm going to dig into the two of the points you just laid out, Jonah. 
will it work? And then how will the international community respond? So Ryan, I know you've done some thinking about this. What are the factors here that are favorable to negotiations and what are the potential roadblocks? Yeah, well, I think the factors that are favorable are are rather few and far between. Um, I think the one course of action, um, as Jonah noted, is that this is a shift in strategy. Um, You know, addressing the Islamist insurgency in Mali has pretty much, both from a domestic but also regional and international perspective, taken the form of a really kind of military-centric strategy. Kaita administration and also the French government, for example, um, were quite positive and almost adamant that there would have been a a military end to the insurgencies by the Al-Qaeda affiliated groups um, operating in North and Central Mali a few years ago. That certainly hasn't been the case. Um, The frequency of violence has expanded as well as the geographical presence um, of these uh, Islamist extremist groups. Um, so a key issue here is that there's there's a different way of thinking um, and a new strategy that is being employed in a bid to to curtail the threat. And I think the the second issue, which which is potentially overlooked, is that there has been some form of initial negotiations, uh, you know, between the Malian government and Islamist militant groups, uh, specifically JNIM and the LMF constituent, um, and this is more or less focused on kind of transactional events. Um, so there were negotiations, for example, over the uh, exchange and release of hostages. Um, and I believe that the Malian government had even managed to kind of deploy um, a few um, clerics, uh, religious clerics, uh, to meet with some of the um, MLF's leadership, specifically Amadou Kufa, and basically have a, a discussion regarding um, the, the implementation of uh, religious law. So that at least from that perspective, there's a precedent that, you know, these the, the government and these groups um, could negotiate or could find common ground. The first key issue is that um, kind of limiting this engagement uh, to some of the extremist groups um, within the region, but not to all of them, uh, is going to create spoilers to the peace. It's very explicit that these negotiations are only with JNM. They are not with ISIS. I think that aligns with some of the way the French are now talking about what is their greater threat. How did you interpret this decision to be clearly that we're only going to talk with JNM and then, as you mentioned, Kufa of uh, the Messina Liberation Front instead of uh, the ISIS faction? I think it's more or less responding to what is the most pressing threat in Mali at this time. And this is essentially the insurgency that has developed in, in the central regions of the country, specifically the Mopti and bordering Manaka regions and, and to an extent Gao as well. And this has been driven by the Messina Liberation Front. And it appears that currently trying to just stem the hemorrhage of violence in central Mali seems to be the key outcome for the Malian government and um, obviously its international partners. ISGS or the Islamic State in Greater Sahara does indeed also maintain a operation, operational presence, I should say, in central Mali. Um, I guess the group has been a little bit more active in neighboring Niger, specifically the Tilaberi and Tahua regions, um, and also in uh, areas of Burkina Faso. And its overall impact um, in, in Mali or within Malian territory is not as acute as, you know, the security threats that have been posed by al-Qaeda-aligned organizations. But again, you know, engaging 
one group of jihadists or Islamist extremists and kind of bypassing the other will just create the marginalized group or the excluded group, uh, 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 essential spoiler to the peace. And I think that that is one of the key issues. I mean, I think you're hitting on the head and it's it's interesting thinking about Jonah's paradigm about uh, the different ways governments pursue uh, counterterrorism operations. We've got now this mix where they're pursuing the second option, a uh, military option against ISIS, Greater Sahara. And you've got, when it comes to JNIM, a combination of number two and number three, which is negotiation. So a lot of risks abound. But Katie, I was wondering... How do you think the international community is going to respond? I mean, it's notable, right? We're only a couple of weeks since the announcement that the U.S. is negotiating with the Taliban. So this seems like they could get behind it. Right. I mean, days since the signing of that agreement, right? You know, I don't know. It's 2020. Up is down. Wrong is right. As Jonah points out, the United States broadly opposes talking to terrorists, this idea that we're going to lend them legitimacy. But this White House in particular is very keen to get out of conflicts. The president of the United States really believes in talking to your enemies and having this sort of personal relationship with folks on the other side. Um, so I'm I'm not convinced yet that the Taliban situation is going to be precedential one way or the other. I think we kind of don't know yet whether or not that's a one-time thing or whether or not that is going to be kind of the direction that this White House takes us to try to get out of some of these different sort of counterterrorism conflicts that we're engaged in across the world. But it does at least world. soften like a hardline view on that what we do or do not do in it with respect to extremist groups. It definitely softens the hardline view. The huge question mark here is what is the United States in general want to do in West Africa? You know, if the United States pulls back the ISR support that it's providing to the French, that gives uh, JNIM the opportunity to kind of wait out the French, essentially. That gives them a chip in these negotiations, which might you know, if I'm if I'm the if I'm the president of uh, of Mali, I'm thinking, okay, well, you know, I better go on and kind of make this deal while I still have some military backing behind me. Um, the other thing that I think is probably important to note as we're kind of thinking about how the international community thinks about this is how the French think about it. I mean, broadly, Operation Barkhane has been popular within France. I mean, it's sort of retained this kind of like 60% popularity mark since- As I long think, as the casualties remain low. As long as the casualties remain low, I was going to say, and we just saw 13 Frenchmen killed just in the last few months. So, you know, it, how much public pressure there is- from France to kind of facilitate negotiations and get the heck out of here, I think is is going to be really critical because I certainly if we're looking at the Afghanistan model, that's a huge reason that that the Trump administration was able to do what it was able to do with regards to talking to the Taliban, because there was this kind of national mood of we want out. Yeah. And Jonah mentioned earlier that Mali doesn't have an election, but France does. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a number of things that we'll have to come back to on the show to think about. I want to move to our second topic. There has been a wave of vigilante violence and this even stranger case of these attacks on homes using poisonous sprays in Zambia. It's all about mobs that police say are seeking revenge for a series of chemical attacks that have killed at least 50 people. The lynchings are the latest gruesome turn in an extraordinary story that has been playing out in the country over the past few months. When the world is going on, let's start with the vigilantism. What is happening? How does this relate to politics in Zambia? 
Yeah, it's quite a complicated and strange case. So um, the initial suggestions or, or kind of motivations for these attacks that have taken place have have ranged from obviously the uh, kind of more salient, I guess, um, uh, ex explanation that it's uh, criminal attacks and and this was kind of the modus operandi employed by um, you know some criminally motivated assailants to essentially incapacitate individuals in their homes and then proceed you know to engage in acts of robbery then there was kind of the weirder motivations to suggest that there was a kind of occult motivation for the violence specifically claims that there were Malawian vampires I guess involved in uh, in some of these um, attacks um, and then kind of ones that really start to um, kind of underline you know political tensions in Zambia um, where both the um, ruling patriotic front party and in addition to members of the um, opposition UPND accused each other or at least kind of political supporters of, of um, each of these respective organizations of orchestrating these attacks um, and and that has certainly kind of heightened the tensions and, and there's been the suggestion suggestions that the uh, administration of Edgar Lungu has not been responsive um, to these attacks when they've occurred and that unfortunately has catalyzed the, these outbreaks of, of vigilantism. So outside of rapidly deteriorating the security environment in affected areas, it's also had these political permutations which have been um, quite tense in Zambia for, for quite a while now. Yeah, Zambian politics, we talked about it uh, a couple episodes ago about how the story of China affects Zambian politics. And here you have another example of, uh, you know, whether you're going to ascribe it to the occult or otherwise, but different issues sort of cutting through really contentious politics. And I, I don't want to leave the conversation without making a couple of points. First is that uh, as Ryan talks about vampires, there's actually some really good academic literature about vampires uh, and their traditions as a, as a myth in West in East Africa, a book by Louise White called Speaking with Vampires, Rumor and History in Colonial Africa. So if you want a background on, on why the Zambians are talking about vampires, it's not because they just love Bram Stoker. There's, uh, there's some more there. Um, and then the second thing I want to talk about is, is about fake news. Police have received more than 500 reports of incidents of chemical spraying of poisonous substances on households that have affected more than 1,600 people. The Zambian government had to state that they would not close schools. Uh, and AFP did a really interesting look at a, a dozen Facebook posts shared uh, more than 2,500 times, which spread false or misleading claims about the attacks. Katie, as the journalist in the room, what is the role in media outlets to combat these sort of myths and, and mistruths that are creating public panic? Well, I mean, first of all, if I had the answer to that, I would be a millionaire right now because it means I would have solved the 2016 election. Right. <laughs> um, but I mean, I think one of the things that's really important to note here is that Zambia is not alone here. I mean, just in the last few years, we've seen false rumors of child kidnappings in India that have led to mob violence and killing right. that sort of spread virally on WhatsApp. Um, so this kind of misinformation is... A common feature, I think, in countries across the world right now that, and as you smartly pointed out, plays on existent divisions or fears that are already present in an existent society. So, I mean, I, you know, to me, the questions become kind of what was it in these posts that was resonating with Zambians and then who stands to benefit from their proliferation? So, 
you know, to a certain degree, we as the journalists can't control how media savvy a given public is, whether they're able to differentiate in between the credibility of different sources. In Zambia, that's going to be a, a huge question. But I also think one of the other questions that may be a little bit more specific to Zambia here is how much freedom does the press enjoy? I mean, if our job as the press is to put out accurate information, to put out information that can be trusted, we have to be trusted and we have to have the opportunity to provide accurate information. Um, and I, my understanding is that there is kind of a bid by the president of, of Zambia right now to kind of harness a little more authority for himself. I know he's seeking his third, what is it, third? It's his third term. Yeah. Third third with an asterisk. Yeah. Right. And and so you, you watch trends like that, and that can sort of raise some questions about how effective the press is able to be in combating misinformation around this kind of crisis. Yeah, there's been some really good uh, surveys from Afrobarometer just talking about African public's views on the media, and it actually has gone down recently. Uh, just a couple of shout outs to a couple organizations that are doing a great job on uh, myth busting. Uh, one I already mentioned, AFP, BBC also does this quite frequently. But then there's an organization called Africa Check based out of South Africa that also will not only look at mistruths and stories that are going viral and test them, but what politicians say. So I recommend people listen to that. Moving to our main topic, I want to talk about Africa's security partners. One of our key tasks is to maintain influence and gain influence vis-a-vis the Chinese. And so we want to make sure we're, we're the a partner of choice. And we'll do that militarily through our training, through our equipment sales, because of the quality and so forth. But I think one of the things that needs to be done for the whole government approach, which is what the Chinese do very well, is they work at the relationship. The number of high-level officials who come to visit just to say hello and just to work at the relationship is very high, and that's meaningful to the Africans. The Africans don't want to be in the middle of great power competition between the U.S. and, and China. They want to be uh, our partner of choice, but they'll make decisions in their own best interest at times. Many militaries in the region now have relationships with the United States, with China, with Russia, of course, former colonial powers like France, the UK, and Portugal, but others too. Just a couple weeks ago, I read that the Czech Republic is sending out a team to talk about defense industry sales in Ethiopia and Djibouti. And Jonah, in your new book, you talk about the different kinds of security assistance and the various actors on the continent. So if you could walk us through some of those points. So one thing our book highlights, which, by the way, is first available on the street today, the book highlights that African governments have more choice of security partners and types of security and military assistance than ever before. Uh, Some partners offer assistance at arm's length, and some get closely involved in waging campaigns, mounting defenses against insurgents, bandits, and terrorists. Uh, You know, first you have arms and equipment. Um, This is an area that Russia and China have dominated for a long time because they're able to provide equipment, arms, patrol craft, airplanes, helicopters at a less expensive price. But next you have training. Long-term training partners include the U.S., France, Britain. These have actually brought African officers from African militaries to their premier military education institutions like West Point, Sandhurst, Sandseer. But Western partners have come to realize that developing capable African forces is more than just about giving a soldier a gun and teaching them to shoot. Uh, technical training like logistics support, campaign planning, and intelligence uh, collection and integration are also very important. As are reforms to civilian and military institutions and ministries that set strategic goals and budgets, care and feed for troops. Um, 
These are considered the spinach of security systems, less tangible, flashy. Who calls it the spinach? I've heard in policymakers call it the spinach. Policymakers, stop calling it the spinach <laughs> of security Wait, systems. This is a bad sales pitch. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Jonah, go ahead. Uh, then there are forms of direct involvement. We have instances in Northwest Africa, Somalia, where French and American forces are willing to become directly involved in Africa's conflicts, take direct action against terrorist targets. Russia is upping its involvement. Um, in the last few years, it's deployed private military contractors like Wagner Group to places like Libya and Mozambique. And there's also an in-between involvement called combat advisory support or advise assistant a company, which involves embedding mentors and advisors into African military units to help develop battlefield plans, guide operations. So there's a lot on offer to African countries. Okay, so I think the takeaway for our audience is this is an incredibly crowded space, right? Different partners doing very different things, some of them doing the same things, and yet the U.S. government, particularly the U.S. military, keeps talking about how they want to be the partner of choice for its African counterparts. And I think this is how the U.S. military is conceptualizing its approach to winning great power competition, to distinguish itself from Russia and China, that if we present ourselves as the best partner, the partner of choice, then we will achieve our national security goals. So Ryan, I guess I've had a problem with this framework. I understand the intent, and I think that the, the, the major general's comments about it not being about resources is a good one, but what do Africans want? Are they looking for a partner of choice? That's a great question. But in my personal engagement with a few soldiers from, you know, various um, national armies across the African continent, there was a lot of consensus in the in the sense that these individuals found that that their militaries and their governments specifically saw Russia and China as being more transactional in the way that they were engaging um, their respective governments and, and national armies, in the sense that it was quite clear that, um, you know, they need security uh, assistance, this being the African governments and their militaries, and in return, um, you know, the governments of, of China or Russia or some other um, Eastern partners, if I can call it, call them that, wanted something in return. And it was a tangible um, exchange um, that could take place on a very equal footing and where um, African governments um, and their militaries um, felt as equal partners, um, you know, quoting some of some of the individuals that I chatted to. And I think that there is a lot of frustration with African governments that um, military engagement or partnership from the West is not necessarily sold as transactional, but where there are significant political conditionalities specifically tied to that cooperation. So, you know, the focus on professionalizing the, the military, you know, um, real harsh criticisms of the human rights abuses um, of governments that, that are engaged um, in, in counterterrorism or counterinsurgency operations. And this just this great perception that there is an unequal balance, um, you know, in, in the nature of these relationships. The biggest frustration at this stage is that, you know, African governments want to engage um, with partners who, who they perceive as treating them equally and where kind of the conditions for cooperation are, are mutually beneficial and very much transactional. Yeah, the way I think about it is that I mean, my read is that African militaries aren't looking for a partner of choice. They're looking for a choice of partners. They're looking to have 
counterparts that can do all the things that Jonah said. And they may find one is more advantageous than another, and they may want multiple working together. I mean, Africans, uh, unlike the U.S. military, are increasingly working in multilateral settings at a time where the U.S. is working more and more in unilateral settings. And it gets even harder, right, Katie, because there's all this talk about us pulling back anyway. How do you sell a partner of choice if you may not be there? Well, I was just about to say, like, why should we as the United States assume that given African country is only going to want to work with the United States versus, as you say, like, if I'm if I'm a given country, like I might want to go to Russia for, you know, this piece of equipment or that piece of training that doesn't come with any conditions. But I also want this other fancy piece of equipment from from the United States. And the United States, unlike Russia and China, is the only one that's saying, no, 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 if you're going to play with our toys, you can only play in our sandbox. Um, those are the only toys you're allowed to play with. And I think that's uh, a very unique thing that um, about American security assistance. The last week of February, we saw um, Defense Secretary Mark Esper go up in front of the House Armed Services Committee, and he was really being pushed by frustrated lawmakers who are really kind of all in on the American presence in in Africa about these these so called this so called blank slate review that he is doing to determine what the the right posture for Africa is going to be. Um, and he finally said, "Look, the the." the options that I have on the table are predominantly cuts. Um, we still don't know exactly what that's going to look like based on the conversations that I'm having kind of within within DOD and within the State Department. It looks like the most likely scenario is um, is that what's really on the chopping board is the U.S. presence in West Africa, where we are kind of, I don't want to say outsourcing the counterterrorism fight to the French, but the French are sort of the primary force, and we are providing intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, a certain amount of logistics support. Um, We just spent millions of dollars last year opening a logistics hub in in Accra, Ghana. Um, So we get a lot of bang for our buck in, in helping the French and letting and sort of letting them take the point, um, and and I think at least here in Washington, there's some real confusion on the Hill and and in the Pentagon as well about why we would give up that kind of low input, high reward scenario. It's certainly not a done deal yet, so uh, you know this is it seems like this is still in flux. But you know I think the other thing that is has been a little bit difficult for critics of of these potential cuts to understand is if the idea is we're going to cut troops in Africa in order to reallocate our resources towards competing with Russia and China under under this sort of new paradigm of great power competition under the national defense strategy. You know, I, I hear two things um, from critics of this. And again, this is stuff that I'm getting from inside the building as well as on Capitol Hill. China and Russia are in Africa. Is this not the sort of playground for for great power competition? If we're going to try to compete with China and Russia, shouldn't we be trying to deny them access to, you know, as you say, be the partner of choice in Africa? And in order to do that, we got to be there. Um, and then the second one is: Are we squeezing blood from a stone here? You know, how how much money, resources, manpower, material, personnel are you going to be able to pull out of this economy of force in Africom? And what? put it where? Yeah, like how's it going to make a critical difference to what you're trying to do in other theaters? I think I can say safely without getting out too far out of my journalistic lane, it's it's not. Yeah. Um, there's there's just not enough there. And and it's also specialty forces that aren't necessarily going to be of any use um, in the South China Sea, um, where we are still uh, sort of working on what our strategy is anyway. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I think that's, I think that's sort of one of the reasons that you're sort of seeing this stretch out so long, this kind of pre-decisional moment where Esper is weighing making these cuts. He wants to make these cuts, but he hasn't actually done it because 
you know, to a certain degree, I'm I'm not sure the case for why they make a lot of sense has really been articulated to the satisfaction of, again, critics on Capitol Hill um, or or even some voices within the building itself. Well, it's not very productive to be deliberating in the open like they are because, you know, since December, we've been living with this will they, won't they Longer than that. Oh, it's been it's been it's been over a year. I mean, we first started seeing reports. I first started hearing that this was something that was potentially under consideration in the winter of 18 to 19, you know, which is well over a year ago now. Uh, You know, and a part of this, of course, is that we do have a president who is very ambivalent about military campaigns, about counterterrorism campaigns around the globe. I mean, he's publicly mused about trying to bring home forces from South Korea as well. So Africa, in this sense, is not unique. It's, you know, where can I bring folks home and, and sort of be able to say, I've brought our troops home, I've, I'm ending the wars. Uh, you know, I, so I, I think there's a real sort of pressure on the Pentagon just politically to find places that they can bring home troops and sort of fulfill the the wishes of the commander-in-chief. Let me try to, to wrap things up a little bit and, and by making two points, and then I'm going to give Ryan the last word. First of all, if we want to be a partner, we have to be there. We have to engage. Obviously, I've already said that I have some issues with it because I think that that paradigm doesn't resonate with the Africans. But that doesn't mean that I think that China or Russia are great partners. So I think that what I think they do pose risks to African sovereignty, and I think they pose risks to the U.S. interest. And so the question is, how do we present to our African partners um, a menu of options for ways in which they can address their security concerns? How do we bring in countries that may have unique assets, equities, and historical ties, both because of colonialism or, more interesting, I think, non-alignment movement, South-South cooperation, so that we can achieve our goals, the Africans can achieve their goals, and we don't look like we're telling them there's our way or the highway. And I think it's the rhetoric that is really off-putting. And the reality is we're not going to do all of those things. If any of those esper cuts happen, I think it's going to be really difficult for us to sell ourselves. But again, I'm here sitting in Washington, D.C., pontificating. And I thought, Ryan, perhaps your judgment may be more useful for our audience if you were uh, marched up to Secretary Esper's office, what would you advise about this proposal? And how do you think uh, Africans and U.S. militaries can work better together? Mm. Well, I think my response to, to that, that question would just be transparency. Um, I get the sentiment that which has never really been articulated with UA, uh, the United States foreign policy uh, from a defense perspective, um, you know, to the African partners um, is the sense that, you know, U.S. foreign policy, and I think specifically um, under the incumbent administration is, is still a U.S. first policy. Um, but that that doesn't have to be mutually exclusive from still providing, um, you know, kind of a lot of the benefits that are being sold to African governments. I just think that there's often this kind of, I wouldn't call it lack of transparency, but just almost ambiguity uh, in the sense that, you know, African governments might still perceive U.S. foreign policy to to not be clear 
And when it's not clear, you know, that's when you kind of get all of the conspiracies running around or this perceptions that this is still kind of a imperious agenda that's being imposed on African states um, by the U.S. government and the West. So, um, so yeah, I think, you know, long story short, it, it would be the focus on, on transparency and that the U.S. government kind of articulate exactly what is the primary motivations for their partnerships with, with African governments from, uh, from a military and defense perspective perspective. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, Ryan. I mean, I really do believe there's a way forward uh, here, um, even if we do some sort of right-sizing on our forces. But the key is to be transparent. The key to th- is thinking about this in a multilateral setting and having a conversation about Africans, about our security and their security, and being creative about how do we advance that uh, in a very complicated world. Thanks, everyone, for coming. We will talk to you again in two weeks. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks. Thanks.